Father, we just pray for your spirit to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week uh, uh, we talked about uh, Abraham going out and rescuing Lot. And there's a, a lot of names that, you know, when you, you go into the original language, the names actually mean something. And so I think if, and so I was looking at some of them, and you remember like Bethel means the, the house of God. And then Ai means a heap of ruins. And these are like, it's kind of interesting the way the story is set up where, you know, Abram has a choice of going one way or the other. He says, is he going to go to Bethel, which really means the house of God, or is he going to go towards the heap of ruins, which is the opposite of God? And then I started looking into to some of these other names, like uh, Bera, uh, king of Sodom. And the word Bera actually means... Uh, son of evil. Yeah, I know, it's kind of interesting. And Sodom, the word Sodom itself means burning. So I started thinking, you know, these are names that, you know, son of evil, the king of Sodom, the king of burning. You know, we know ultimately, if you know anything about uh, the biblical story, that eventually, you know, Sodom does burn. And so I'm thinking that, well, here is Moses now. He's writing this after the fact. I mean, he's uh, well beyond this. And, and so he's writing historical stuff there. And so I started thinking that, you know, for the longest time, uh, critics of the Bible would deny that, that Sodom and Gomorrah ever even existed. They would just flat out deny it. It was just a myth. Uh, but... In uh, nineteen in nineteen seventy five, uh, where my little clicker go? In nineteen seventy five, they started doing. Uh, oh yeah, turn it on. They started doing excavations in the ancient city of Ebla, and I was really surprised because it just happened to be on this one map that we were using. The other day you can see it, it's right there, just to get an idea. And so they're digging down through the layers of Ebla, you know, because cities tend to be built right on top of themselves. The city will go into ruins, and then they build on top of that, and they build on top of that. Well, they're digging down, and they're, at, they're down at the time of, of Abraham. And they get into this, uh, they get into the, they're in the palace, and it's in the basement of the palace, and there's these two big giant rooms, 15,000, 15,000 clay tablets. And uh, uh, there were some interesting things in there. There were some tablets that had uh, translation tables. In other words, they, they would have a, oh, one language here, and then they have another language side by side so you could cross-reference the words, kind of like a cheesy little Rosetta Stone kind of a thing. You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah, they found stuff like that. But the bulk of the things that they found in there were trading records. Like, these guys were total record-keeping freaks in terms of trade. And what they found in this big record-keeping area was a whole bunch of records that documented trade between the king of Ebla and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's like, you know... The cities actually existed, so which even makes it more incredible when you go back here and you look at uh, uh, Bera, king of Sodom. Bera means son of evil, right? Uh, and then, and then it ends up that you know Sodom. The word Sodom means burning. It's like it just—it's almost mind-boggling to me to think about the fact that these cities were named after things that would actually uh, happen to them in the future. Um, there was also um, references to the five cities of the plain. Remember last week we got the, the four kings that came in and invaded the, the five kings? Well, those five kings represented the five cities of the plain. Uh, I, they're not actually shown here, but Sodom was one, Gomorrah was one, Zor was one. I forget the other two, but, but in these records they actually, and they referred to these five cities like the Bible refers to them as the five cities of the plain. And uh, 
I just find it truly amazing. Um, uh, so, number one on your sheet, it says, Archaeology proves the Bible is true. Okay? It, to be true. Yeah. 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 So, uh, there's one other thing that I want to talk about. Is uh, There's a, in terms of these clay tablets... Um, it goes back to, you know, how did Moses get the information to write all this stuff that happened before his time, you know? I mean, obviously the Exodus, he could write that. I mean, he was part of that. But when he was going to write the stories of Abraham, you know, and Isaac and Jacob, uh, how would he be able to get those kind of details? I mean, did he get direct revelation from God? Uh, you know, how did that happen? Because if you think about it, there's some very detailed things in there. And so what they found is, what they found these tablets in Ebla, which kind of confirmed the work of some other guy, that uh, P.J. Wiseman, I think, way back in 1939. Uh, uh, he was under the impression that based on the way that they dealt with the tablets, they would always put at the end of the tablet kind of like the title of And so... If they would say, you know, this is the generation of, you know, uh, Abraham or whatever. If you look in the Bible, whenever it says, and this is the generations of, and it gives whoever it is, but the actual people that they're talking about came before that. So it's always referring to something that came before, and this would fall in line with uh, this idea of when they would write these clay tablets back in the day, is at the bottom they would kind of put the title at the bottom, kind of like Walter Cronkite used to say, and this is the way it is, or whatever Walter Cronkite used to say. You know, but so kind of like the title that would be at the end. And so if you follow through with that, and I'm really not doing it justice right now, but I took a class in Bible college, and they, they talked about this there too. But uh, um, it, it's uh, it's kind of interesting because it's very possible that Moses, remember he was the prince of Egypt. We all saw the cartoon. He was the prince of Egypt, and he probably went to the University of Cairo. And he was, you know, the, he was like that with the pharaoh, so he had access to get all these records. And so there's a good chance that when Jacob brought the whole family down into Egypt, that they could have brought all these family records with them. And Moses got a hold of them. And so when Moses wrote Genesis, very good chance that he was just copying eyewitness accounts. And there's some evidence that he was doing that, even in the text that we looked at uh, last week. uh, He puts little editorial comments. Uh, It's kind of like, if I was going to go back to the beginning of the United States, and I'm going to tell you about uh, the city of New Amsterdam, Okay, some of you here might know what I'm talking about. Most the kids wouldn't know today about New Amsterdam. I'd say, well, you know, New York, because before New York was New York, it was New Amsterdam. And so, and you find that Moses, and when he's writing in Genesis, he does the same thing. I think it was it says uh, in Genesis 14:8, he says, uh, "The king of Bela, that is Zor." So it used to be called Bela, now it's called Zor, right? And so there's a good chance that that's what he was doing. He was writing through there, and he'd get to a point, he'd say, oh, nobody's going to know what Bell is, but I know that, you know, I went to the University of Cairo. I know that that's really Zor today. So he'd write in Zor for him, just put editorial comments. So kind of just some little tidbits because, you know, realistically, how did Moses know what to write? Because there's some serious detail in these stories. So uh, that's one possibility. Nobody knows for sure, but to me, it kind of makes the most amount of sense to me. So, uh, let's see. So we can get started now at, uh, at Genesis uh, uh, 14, starting at verse 7. <clears throat> and so it says, after Abram had returned from uh, defeating, uh, I'm just going to call it guy K, okay? I struggle with that name. Uh, defeating K and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him, in the valley of Seva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Sodom, 
brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With hand raised high, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, uh, to, to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you can never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I'll accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Uh, let them have their share. So it's kind of an interesting scene that, uh, in a lot of different ways, I think that, you know, um, Abram's, you know, returning home from battle and he's greeted by these uh, uh, two kings, uh, the king of Sodom and uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And so we already know that, uh, that Bera's name actually means son of evil and, and king of Sodom, the king of burning. And that, on the other hand, though, Melchizedek uh, actually means the king of the name itself. Mel- Melchizedek means king of righteousness and king of Salem means king of peace. And so uh, it's like... Abram comes back from this big battle, and, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely the victor in this whole thing. And you've got, like, a choice between basically good and evil standing right in front of him. And so that's what he has to deal with. And, uh, you know, it's uh, not uncommon for us to be in that same kind of situation where, you know, uh, maybe not to the extreme that... Uh, uh, Abram's uh, dealing with here, but definitely in our own little realm, we're constantly be putting in situations where you know, am I going to go God's way or I'm going to go the way of the world? And that's what these two guys are representing here. And so, uh, the first thing that I got, or actually number two, it says yeah, Melchizedek. The first thing he does is he reminds Abram that uh, God resp- was responsible for his victory. Okay. He says, praise be to God most high to delivered your enemies into your hand. So uh, Melchizedek, he, re, he reminds Abram that. So number two is God was responsible for his victory. And uh, number three, uh, the way Abram uh, responded was by giving a tenth of everything to God. Okay? So Abram gave a tenth, which is, uh, which is a tithe. Tithe is kind of a Bible kind of word, but it stands for a tent. It's kind of interesting, the king of Sodom, that he offers uh, Abraham everything except for the people. And uh, I think that is uh, in, the, in the battle of good and evil. I think that Satan, that's what he wants. He wants the bodies. He wants the people. And so... Uh, you know, the king of Sodom, he wanted the people back. And basically, according to the, you know, the ancient rules of war, Abraham, he was, he was entitled to everything that the king of Sodom had offered him. But, you know, he declined. Uh, and and I, 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 I'm just trying to imagine that scene where they're there and, you know, uh, Abram, you know, gets blessed by Melchizedek and then, uh, and then he basically tells the king of Sodom, you know, I don't want anything to do with you because I don't want anybody to say that you had anything to do with me becoming great because I think, I think the fact that Abraham had been on that military mission and the people that he defeated were uh, some pretty serious uh, foes. And I think the whole thing was starting to sink, on it, sink in on him that, you know what? God has promised me some stuff, and based on what I've seen so far, I think this is really going to happen. So he doesn't want to associate himself with uh, the king of Sodom. So, and then finally in that scene, uh, I thought it was interesting that 
you know, Abraham didn't force his, try to force his belief or anything on uh, the guys that went with him. He made sure that they got their share. But I got to think it had to have some sort of an impact. If you really think about it, um, uh, Abraham and his buddies, at, what was that, Mamre, uh, uh, Ishkol, uh, I can't remember the other guy's name right now, but uh, if you think about it, they were kind of off to the side and they didn't come under attack at all. And they were kind of outside of the fray. Geographically, they're not that far away. So I don't know if, I'm not, I don't know, maybe God was protecting them. But the minute that Lot got in trouble, he found out that Lot was in trouble. And so uh, Abram engaged and says, you know what? And these guys, I don't know, they didn't really have any skin in the game, really. But they, they went with him. So Abram had some sort of a relationship with these guys that he was living near. And they took off and you know, went out and participated in this battle. So kind of interesting thing. So I, I got to think that, that what... Abraham did was probably a pretty good witness to those guys there. So um, this uh, this Melchizedek, Melchizedek, uh, he's kind of an interesting guy. If if the only time we ever heard about him in the Bible would be this, it'd be like, yeah, he was a priest. He blessed Abraham, and we'd be on our way. Uh, but he shows up in other places too. I think on your paper, I. I listed all the verses. Uh, uh, did I list it on your notes? Or maybe even on the... There's a chart, I think, that shows uh, the chart. I'm, I may have listened. Or I thought about listing. Maybe I didn't actually do it. Uh, yeah. And those are the ones where I could find where his name is mentioned specifically. But what I want to do is I want to read Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. Because 7, 1 through 3 just kind of kind of takes Melchizedek and kind of packages him up. Very neat thing. If you really want to know everything about Melchizedek, read Hebrews chapter 7. Because it goes into uh, more detail than I really want to go into tonight. But I got a little chart. We're going to kind of explain it and do the, the simple version of it. Uh, It says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without a father or mother, without a genealogy, without a beginning days or end of life, Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So, if you, you know, when the writer of the Hebrew puts that into that context, everything we've been talking about, there's genealogies. I mean, you can trace everybody from Noah, you know, everybody's got their place in the story. But this Melchizedek, he just kind of walks onto the stage here. Uh, like he says here, no, no father, no mother, no genealogy without a beginning of days or end of life. He just kind of waltzes on, he does this thing, and then you don't hear from him again. Uh, and so, like I say, if that's all there was, we'd just be wondering about, who was this guy? But in Psalm 110, uh, David writes a messianic psalm. Uh, so we're going to read Psalm 110. And you can think of this psalm as if... Uh, David wrote it, but it's almost like he was listening into a conversation in the throne room of God, okay? So it makes, uh, it's easier to, it makes more sense if you think of it like that. So uh, in verse 1, Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, the Lord says, my Lord, it's the, the first Lord is like Yahweh, the unspeakable Lord that the Jews would not speak. And the second one is Adonai, which in context, this would be God the Father talking to God the Son. And he says, sit at my right hand, which is like a, sit, a seat of uh, power, until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. 
the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops be willing on your day of battle. So he's establishing him as a king now. He said, Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are our priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay? The Lord is at your right hand and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing them and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook along the way and he will also lift his head high. So David has this, uh, it's kind of like a prophetic psalm of the Messiah. And he's actually talking about Jesus. And what happens in Hebrews chapter 7 is he goes through and kind of expounds on this and how it happens. But I think it's, it's easier for me if you've got a picture to look at. And um, you guys have these. But if you look at, uh, like up here, if you start going this way on this line here, that's a timeline. Obviously, Adam was the first man, and then eventually we got to Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. Okay, and then down here, this is, shows the family tree of Jacob. So these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and then, and then you can see Moses here. In this area here, if we were to put something in there, that would be they went into Israel. I mean, the Israelites went into and stayed in Egypt. So this would be the time that they spent in Egypt there. Okay? And then if you follow this timeline out, we go to David, and then eventually you go to Jesus. So Abraham, he interacted with his high priest, Melchizedek. Okay? And Moses... Here, his brother was the first high priest, but part of that uh, arrangement was that the tribe of Levi, they became the Levitical priests. Okay? So these guys became the Levitical priests. Okay? And if you look here, you can see that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. So in Hebrews, when he's trying to explain this all out to everybody, he's basically saying, hey, the priest didn't come from Judah. The priest came from Levi. But Jesus came from Judah. But he's still our high priest. So what does he say? He says, because of what David said, right? David had this messianic psalm. The writer of Hebrews out here, he says that Jesus is our, high, our king and our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Okay. And he attaches him back to Abraham. Abraham is such a key guy in the whole story of salvation. It's unbelievable how key he is. Because, because at this point, they get the law, and the, and the Jewish nation, Israel, is all trying to keep the law. They're trying to keep the law in order to kind of get their way into heaven. And, but when Jesus comes on the scene, everybody, everything reverts back to here. If you look in Galatians, uh, Paul talks a lot about Abraham in Galatians because he says, hey, you know what? Abraham was justified by God back here, not because he kept any kind of law, but because he believed. And we're going we're gonna to hit on that uh, here in a little bit. So basically, Melchizedek is in there because Jesus comes from the line of Judah and Jesus has to be our high priest, all right, in heaven. And he can do that because from the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, like it says here, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, hey, you know what, he didn't have mother or father, uh, no genealogy, no nothing, no day he was born, no day he died, he just kind of appears onto the scene. He's a priest forever. So Jesus falls into this priesthood here. We good? <laughs> Some of you are like... I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So Melchizedek. If you want to read chapter 7 in Hebrews over and over and over again, it's basically going to tell you that. So 
in verse 20, uh, in verse 20, uh, it's the first time they talk about tithing in the Bible. A lot of firsts in Genesis, but uh, tithing is the first time it's talked about, verse 20. And it says, then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, Melchizedek blessed him, and there's no like, uh, you know, Abram thought about it for a while, and he really considered, was he going to go with the king of Sodom, or was he going to do no immediately? He just gave uh, Melchizedek um, a tenth of everything. So normally, you know, we associate tithing with Moses in the law, but and, and primarily that's where, where it happens, but we're going to see in, as we get farther into Genesis here, Jacob, which is uh, Abraham's grandson, he's going to offer up a tithe. It's kind of interesting circumstances, but I don't want to give it away, but it's in chapter 28. So uh, on the tithe, the Jews actually uh, paid an annual tithe to the Lord. And uh, if you, did I put the references to Leviticus in there for the tithes? Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. If you want to go read about it, we're not going to read it now, but it's, it's a kind of interesting thing. It was a pretty, uh, it was an annual tithe. You had to give a tenth of everything. And uh, if it was like grain or, you know, or fruit or stuff like that, uh, they had a provision to where if you wanted to redeem some of your goods and and give money instead, you could do that, but you had to pay a 20% penalty on it. So, so whatever it was worth that you redeemed it out in money, you had to give a 20% premium to it. I thought that was kind of interesting. But there was no provision on animals, uh, no provisions at all. And they even had a special way that if you had, you know, if you had 100 sheep, uh, you know, what they would do is they would they'd just say, herd the sheep into a chute, and they would, they would just count them off. One, two, three, four, five, six, eight, seven, eight, nine, ten. Did I count the ten wrong? Yeah. And they would pop out that sheep so that you couldn't, like, you couldn't pick the sheep that you were going to give. You, I guess people are trying to, like, cheat on their taxes or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, they had a real orderly way where they would actually, every tenth animal, they would mark it and, uh, and uh, take them out. Uh, in Deuteronomy 26, it talks about a tithe that they would have that would happen every third year. So every third year, they would take a tenth, and that was to, I guess, to take care of the poor. <laughs> it's kind of like... A, <clears throat> excuse me, a, like a welfare program. And those are the two most interesting. Deuteronomy 12 uh, talks about another kind of tithe, and I think that if you really dug into tithes, you could come up with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so, um, let's see. Yeah, so... Um, number five is New Testament... Giving is the uh, is the blank there. So things changed a little bit in the New Testament. Uh, most of the stuff on New Testament giving is actually covered in the two Corinthian letters. In First Corinthians, uh, chapter sixteen, verses one and two, I'll read that to you. It says. It says, now about the collection of the, for the Lord's people. Uh, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. This is Paul giving them instructions. He says, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Uh, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So I think that maybe, maybe that's the president for you know giving something, you know, Every week, uh, uh, actually, almost all of Second Corinthians chapters eight and nine uh, talk about giving in one way or another. But I think probably uh, the most famous verse or whatever, the most well-known verse out of that, uh, most of you, I believe, have probably heard it, is Second uh, Corinthians nine. Uh, Verses 7 and 8. It says, uh, Each of you should give 
what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So, um, it's clear in the New Testament that we're supposed to give money. There's no specific amount. Uh, I think a lot of people use the tithe as like a, a benchmark, and there's probably nothing wrong with that. I'd say that for some folks, uh, a tithe isn't near enough, and and for other folks, a tithe would break the bank. So, uh, so what really kicks in is in what he says in verse seven: give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if you're given and you're feeling good about it, that's the main thing. I think if I think if you're given, it's like uh, I don't think God wants your money if it's coming in like that. So six, God loves a cheerful uh, giver. If you think about it, um, if you think about it like this, uh, if I've got uh, ten. Ten dollar bills, a hundred bucks, and if I give you a hundred bucks, and then I say, "Could I have ten of that back?" You can keep ninety. Kind of a sweet deal. Uh, or if, even if I said, uh, "You know, could I have twenty of that back?" And you can keep eighty. Yeah, I can go along with that. You know, if you really stop and think about it, everything that we have comes from God. So, the whole idea of giving, uh, it's a good thing. James one seventeen says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Everything comes from God. So, ultimately it all belongs to Him. So, Genesis 15, it says, After this, after what? We've kind of been off talking about that. After Abraham met with the king of Sodom and the, and the king of Salem, after the whole thing went down there, uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So um, I think that uh, Abram had just come back from this big battle. Uh, he pretty much whooped up on some pretty bad dudes. And then there was this big ceremony out on the plain where the king of Sodom was there, the king of Salem was there, and they're doing this deed about, hey, I want to give you all this stuff. It's kind of like a big ceremony, what's going on. So I would venture to say that everybody in the area knew that Abram was like the general that took down these four kings that came from, you know, basically over by the Tigris-Euphrates area. So his name was out there, okay? And I think we talked a little bit about last week, but the the warriors that came from that area of the world were just unbelievable. The Ninevites were descendants of these guys, these four kings. And the Ninevites were just despicable people, okay? I, there's no other way to put it. And so... I'm thinking, you know, Abram's back. You know, everything went down on the plane there. And now he's off on his own. And he's got, you know, uh, uh, ancient PTSD right now. He's thinking, these guys aren't going to take this laying down. These are some bad dudes. They're going to go home. They're going to get some fresh horses. And they'll be back. And so he's probably sweating right now. Uh, You know, Probably the hardest part of the military is not when you're in the middle of a fight. It's when you get back and you have time to think about, you know, what happened, what went down while you're there. And so um, I'm thinking that Abraham's probably stressing over that right now. So God comes to him at that point in time and says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Uh, You're very great. 
uh, reward. So he's probably feeling anxiety. And one of the advantages that we have um, is that we have the whole story. You know, we have the whole Bible. And uh, we have, you know, the God of the universe speaking directly to us uh, through his word. And so in Philippians uh, 4, 6, and 7, Abraham didn't have this. But in a way, when God spoke to him, he kind of reassured him. But in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, I think that... um, God came, Abraham didn't have that revelation. So I think God came and spoke to him directly. And uh, said, you know, you ain't got nothing to worry about. These guys aren't coming back. Okay, so reading from verse 1 again. I'm going to read from verse 1 and 15. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And so, you know, Abram, you know, it's been a few years, right? He took off, he is 75, and he's saying, Hey, you know, you promised me this stuff and it's not happening. And uh, going back to the names... uh, it's here again, Eliezer of Damascus. His name means God is help. So, you know, every day, and uh, I've, God is help, yeah. And so, I mean, so Abram's talking to this guy. He's probably one of his uh, favorite servants. I mean, he's planning on, you know, giving his whole household over to the guy, so he probably liked him. So every day, you know. I mean, it's kind of like God's got a sense of humor. God is help. Yeah, well, where's my kids, you know? Where's my kids, right? So, anyway. So, what does God say to him? He says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. If you remember last week in Genesis 13, he said, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that any would, so if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. So I think God's got all the bases covered. If Abraham's out with his flocks and he's walking down the road and he's looking down, he's seeing the dust that's right there, and God's saying, "Hey, man, if you could count all that dust, that's how many kids you're going to have, right?" At night he goes to sleep and he looks up in the stars. And he says, you know, it's there. It's like, you know, it's like God has got everything covered. So uh, I've heard people say that, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but what he was doing is is that the promises that God gave to the Israelites were for land. You know, that's what he really promised. They would have a land. And so that they say when when he's talking about the dust, uh, he's talking about the promises that God made to Israel. And when he talks about the stars, you know, our citizenship is in heaven. That in that reference, he's talking about the church. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds pretty cool. Uh, so, and here's the key line. It says here, um, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Okay? Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. That is uh, a key verse because uh, this is the verse that Paul uses in Galatians. I think it's in Romans. It's in James. And what it does is it's the verse that basically negates the law. It negates the fact that you've got to work your way into heaven, that there's anything that you can do because Abraham believed God and he, he credited to him as righteousness. And some other Bible says it counted to him as righteousness. 
and the whole thing here, and it this is the it's a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. I mean, even with Noah, you know, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? Uh, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited him as righteousness. It says so. Uh, in the Hebrew, that word believe means to lean your whole weight upon. So it's kind of like lean your whole... In other words, he's saying the for believe it would be like, okay, I'm going to come over this chair, and this is a sturdy chair, so I'm going to put all my weight on that. So Abraham put all of his weight in his belief uh, in the Lord, and he credited him righteousness for that. So it's kind of like the same thing with us where, you know, on our own we can't be righteous, but if we humble ourselves before God and believe that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, and then God can say, all right, you know what, I'm justified to credit you with righteousness now, even though you're still a sinner, right? So even though Abraham has messed up in the past, we're going to see he's going to mess up in the future, but because in his heart, Abraham believed God, he credited him as righteousness. <clears throat> so in number seven, it says, we are not saved by making promises to God. So the first half of that is, we're not saved by making promises to God. The second half is, we, we are saved by believing the promises of God. You know, in the New Testament, it's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's really, it's all about believing from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. I mean, there's nothing more to it than that. Uh, in John, he wrote the book of John, and in John 20.31, he gives the reason why he wrote his book. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, the whole Gospel of John, that's the reason he wrote it, so people would uh, know that that's all they need to do is believe. I mean, the very first words that Jesus said in Mark, he says, you know, repent, change your mind, and believe the Gospel. I mean, and that's all there is. It's uh, the way that God uh, gives salvation hasn't changed at all. I mean, the object of what you believe may have changed. I mean, the Old Testament Jews, they believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And for us, it's the same thing. You know, we believe that because of what Jesus did, God's going to do what he said he's going to do. So uh, in that way, uh, it never, it's never changed. So in verse 7, he says, He also said to them, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. That's pretty heavy to do. We don't really think about it. I, mean, I was thinking about it. I was kind of convicted by that, actually. You know, God's in control of everything, and that's what Abram's saying there. Lord, that's in control of everything. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, uh, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, and cut them in two and arranged them, arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Before we get too far into this, this is be the equivalent of, in our day, of uh, where it would be like me saying to God, hey, how do I know this is going to happen? And he says, you know what? Go down to the stationery store and pick up some blank contract forms and meet me down at the courthouse and we'll draw up a contract, and we'll get it notarized and make this official. Okay, so what they're going through here is the closest thing 
that we have to a covenant is a contract. It's, but it's really not that close. But it's the best we can do. A covenant was, I think, a much deeper uh, agreement. Because a contract, you can fill out a contract, and if you're out of money, you can find an expensive lawyer and weasel your way out of it, okay? I mean, that's just kind of the way it works. But a covenant was kind of like on a different level. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, you know, we, would, uh, we had BB gun wars and all sorts of crazy things that you could never do now. But, uh, but there was a certain group of friends that we would be blood brothers. And so you might, you might have done this when you were a kid where when you put a little nick on your finger and somebody else puts a little nick on their finger and you, you, know, you mingle the blood. Well, I never really understood what that was, just something I think I saw in a Cowboys and Indian show or something like that. You know, I didn't really understand the gravity of it. But back in the day, like say in Abraham's day, that, you know, you would be uh, on the, you know, they'd be out pasture, you got your herds. And you come along another guy over here and he's got his herds. And you don't know if that guy's your friend or not. Because he may want to come take you out so he can have your herds. So what they would do is maybe they'd fill each other out and decide, hey, I think we can get along. And so in, in that case, maybe what they would do is they'd say, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to mingle my blood with your blood and we'll become blood brothers. So we're just like brothers now and we won't we'll kind of agree not to attack each other. So that was one type of a covenant. Uh, the type of a covenant that uh, Abraham is setting up here was uh, probably more of a, a more serious level. I mean, you would have to have a much more powerful lawyer to get out of this one. Uh, because what they would do is they would get these animals and um, what do you got? A heifer, a goat, a ram, three years old. I mean, they're so pretty large animals. And what they would do is they would cut these animals in half and then they would split them. And then uh, basically what he's going to describe here, something similar to what happens anyway, is they're split in half. And what these guys would do then is they would walk through between these animals and as a testimony between them and God, it would be, as God would be my witness that if I break this covenant, that I would end up like these animals on the ground. So that's kind of the idea behind what was going on here. So that's a covenant versus a modern-day contract. So it was on a much higher level. So, I mean, it was serious business. I think the level of integrity between men was maybe a notch higher then than it is now. But so anyway, so let's go back to 10. It says, Abram uh, brought these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. I don't know the details on that. It says, then the birds of prey came down uh, on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So it's, he lays this out here in the day and then he, He's basically out there fighting the birds off, you know, until the sun goes down. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Uh, then the Lord said to him, Know for certain, this is kind of interesting here, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He's describing the Egyptian captivity here. Uh, But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Uh, You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be married at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God is kind of prophesying to Abram, telling him, this is what's going to happen in the future. And it's kind of interesting, you know, a lot of stuff, if you you kind of know the story about, you know, they go into Egypt and then they come out of Egypt and all that stuff, if you know that. But it's kind of interesting here that uh, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God's got something going on here with the Amorites. I mean, he's got something with Israel, so he's dealing with them. But he's saying, you know what, I'm really not done with the Amorites yet. So when the Amorites have kind of reached the limit of the sin, and then you're going to come in and take over. So, Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Uh, 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the the Wadi of Egypt, that's the river of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenites, the Kenezites, the the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. So remember the the uh, scene that I did for you is that normally you got the, the animal split in half, you got the two parties walking between them, and they're both basically agreeing, hey, may God strike me dead like these animals if I break this covenant. A covenant is uh, normally involves two people. That's number eight, right? A covenant normally involves two or more people, really, but it has to have at least two. Because they're, they're both being, in this instance, they're both being held accountable to God to whatever it is they're agreeing on. So in this one, though, what does it say? When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So Abram is off to the side. So in this covenant, God's covenant with Abraham required nothing from Abraham, okay? Nothing, all right? And this is of huge significance, really, okay? Because in 10, I say the covenant demonstrates God's grace, right? Because if you fast forward the story to the New Testament, in Ephesians it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. So this covenant, this promise that Abraham got from God, God said, I'm going to do this. You don't have to do anything. The same way he says to us. He said, by grace you're saved. You don't have to do anything. There's nothing. It's all about me. It's nothing about you. Okay? So it's a pretty significant thing, and it gives us a... It's the first real graphic uh, uh, revelation of God's grace. Because, you know... Abraham's got some serious questions. Hey, what about all this stuff? God says, hey, let's draw up a covenant here and we'll make it happen. What does Abraham have to do? Nothing. What do we have to do? Nothing. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for uh, your word and we thank you that we could uh, peek into Abraham's life here and just see how you dealt with him and Lord, uh, for uh, the great hope that we have in Jesus and knowing that uh, the relationship you have with Abraham that we can have with you also. We just uh, thank you for this. And I just pray we remember this as we go out into the week and do what we do, that uh, we have a chance to tell our people about you, Lord. I just pray you uh, give us the words to speak. Just pray this in Jesus' name.